Um, I think there is widespread agreement among political scientists and constitutional lawyers that gerrymandering is pernicious, it's contrary to democracy. The question is, what's the right remedy and can the court supply it? So I, I think we should expect the ruling from the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court to stand and for that map to be redrawn for uh, the 2018 elections in the fall. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from sunny and warm Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have a book out entitled the sled. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is in court today. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Gerrymandering is the dividing of counties into election districts so as to give one political party a majority in many districts while concentrating the voting strength of the other party into as few districts as possible. The word gerrymander was created in reaction to a redrawing of Massachusetts State Senate election districts under Governor Eldridge Gerry back in 1812. Governor Gerry signed a bill that redistricted Massachusetts to benefit his Democratic-Republican party. On a map, one of the districts in the Boston area was said to resemble the shape of a salamander, hence the name gerrymander came to be. Currently, redistricting remains pending in eight states, and just this week, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court struck down the congressional map in that state, saying it illegally benefited the GOP, violating the Constitution. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing gerrymandering and redistricting. We will also take a look at redistricting legislation across the nation and the impact of gerrymandering on elections. And to do that, we've got a great lineup for you today. Our first guest is Professor Edward B. Foley, NED. He's the Director of Education Law at Moritz College of Law at Ohio State's Law School, where he also holds the Ebersold Chair in Constitutional Law. His book, Ballot Ballots, The History of Disputed Elections in the United States, was published by Oxford University Press and was awarded finalist for the 2016 David Langham Senior Prize in American Legal History. And welcome to the show, Ned Foley. Oh, it's great to be here, Craig. Thanks so much. And our next guest is Tom Wolf, counsel with the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, focusing on redistricting issues. Tom regularly participates as an amicus in partisan and racial gerrymandering cases before the United States Supreme Court and advises on litigation strategies for state and federal courts. He recently wrote a blog post alongside colleagues Michael Lee and Alexis Farmer titled The State of Redistricting Lit Litigation. Welcome to the show, Tom Wolf. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Ned, let's start with you. I kind of gave a little bit of a summary of gerrymandering in the beginning, but uh, can you give us a little bit more on the historical use of this tactic by the uh, respective elective parties that want to be in office? Sure. Well, it's been around for as long as the country has existed. In fact, even before that Eldridge Jerry gerrymander in 1812, in the very first congressional election, there was an attempt to deprive James Madison of his seat in Congress, if you can believe it, by 
um, manipulating the lines of, of his district in Virginia. And Patrick Henry was uh, behind that maneuver. They didn't call it a Henry Mander, although they might have, but uh, so um, it even happened in colonial times. So the idea of manipulating these districts for partisan advantage is, uh, or at least electoral advantage uh, on the part of one side of the competition has been around since the beginning of the country, and it's persisted throughout. I mean, it, it happened in the 19th century, it happened in the 20th century, and what we're seeing lately is whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court and and federal constitutional law has a role in being a constraint on this longstanding practice. And Tom, give us a little bit of an overview about redistricting litigation, gerrymandering litigation. What what historically have we seen, and, and where are we right now? I believe that there are about eight states with this kind of litigation going on? We're hoping that what we're going to get by the end of this term is a ruling from the Supreme Court that's going to clearly set out when a partisan gerrymander crosses the line. This has been an issue that the court's been struggling with for decades now. It took its first real step towards trying to articulate a standard in, in the mid-1980s, and since then it's it's been struggling to really give teeth to, to what it said back then. That's a little different from where we're at with racial gerrymandering. The racial gerrymandering cause of action has existed since the early 90s, and its outlines are, are not fully understood, but it, it's not changing as much as partisan gerrymandering. So what we've been seeing this decade with partisan gerrymandering is an attempt by litigants all over the country to finally break through and finally get the cause of action. What we're seeing with racial gerrymandering cases, broadly speaking, is we're starting to see racial minorities who have been disadvantaged by racial, racial gerrymandering use that cause of action to affirmatively try to get fairer maps. And that's the sort of central drama, I guess, playing out right now in the racial gerrymandering space. What's with the current fascination on gerrymandering? I mean, this is, could be about the dullest subject that you can imagine, yet uh, here it is occupying our headlines. I would say it has to do with the uh, health of our democracy. The problem is when you have this manipulation of the lines, you can distort democracy and, and, and deprive or take away majority rule. So yes, it sounds technical and, 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 and involves numbers and math and maps, but it goes to the heart of self-government, popular sovereignty, because you can take away popular sovereignty if you can manipulate the maps and deprive uh, the people of, of the power to, to vote. Um, sometimes you hear the quip that when gerrymandering it works, it means that the members of the legislature pick their voters, not the voters picking their representatives. This is a problem that I think people have recognized for a very long time. So even though gerrymandering has existed in some form or another for practically all of American history, there's also been widespread resistance to gerrymandering as a legitimate practice for virtually all of American history. What we've now come to is, particularly in this decade with the growth in the amount of data available on voters and the technology available to manipulate that data through maps, we're seeing a, a breed of extreme gerrymandering that's way more effective than what's happened in the past. So people have long had these deep-seated problems with um, representation and accountability in their maps, and we now have uh, a problem that seems like it's reached sort of an extreme level that people really aren't willing to tolerate anymore. That may also provide some opportunities for the courts to finally step in, and I think that accounts in large part not just for the kind of uproar about gerrymandering, but also the, the increasing volume of litigation around the subject. 
Is is neutrality even possible in gerrymandering net? Are we ever going to be able to get something that's fair for both sides? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, the, the real question for the court, I think, is one of institutional capacity. Um, I think there is widespread agreement among political scientists and, and constitutional lawyers that gen- gerrymandering is per pernicious, it's contrary to democracy. The question is, what's the right remedy and can the court supply it? So, for example, we have seen outside of some of the main litigation, the development of so-called nonpartisan redistricting commissions. California has this, Arizona has this. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but those commissions do achieve a kind of neutrality or impartiality that um, doesn't exist when you let a partisan legislature draw its own maps. The worst institution to do this is when the legislature draws its own maps, because the party that happens to be in power at the moment, temporarily, will draw a map in its own favor. And that's what we try to avoid. That's the evil. Um, So one institutional reform is to try to take this out of the legislature and put it in a nonpartisan commission. But how do you do that? Um, Some states that have referenda and initiative means the citizens can take this into their own hands and demand that kind of institution. But other states don't have the initiative or referendum, and the legislature is not going to give up its own its own power. So that's why there's been a turn to the judiciary in the hope that federal constitutional law can supply a standard. I think if the court does intervene and come up with a standard this year, it will be very helpful, but it won't be perfect neutrality, and it won't be the same as a nonpartisan commission, because the role of the court, I think, at best, will be to stop what Tom called the extreme gerrymander, to be the cop of last resort who says, no, 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 that goes just way too far. We can't tolerate that. But ruling out the extreme isn't the same as insisting on fairness. And so if we want real fairness, we need to have a different type of institutional reform. So courts are good, but nonpartisan commissions, if you can get them, would be even better. Do you think the Supreme Court will accept the cert petition from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court case? So I think there are a couple things to note with what's going on with the Pennsylvania map and the Supreme Court. Um, There's already been uh, one appeal signaled from a case that was proceeding in the federal courts under the elections clause. Uh, that claim was rejected, and the plaintiffs have appealed that. They're challenging the same map that the Pennsylvania state court just declared this week. As Craig noted at the the top of the show, uh, was a partisan gerrymander, so it's probably going to moot out that federal case. To my mind, there is not a viable federal constitutional issue here that's going to give the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court a hook to come in and intervene in, in the Pennsylvania case, the Pennsylvania state case. So I, I think we should expect the ruling from the Pennsylvania state Supreme Court to stand and for that map to be redrawn for uh, the 2018 elections in the fall. Who gets the task to redraw it? I mean, I, there have been some uh, documentaries and some gerrymandering that indicate that there are a few people in the world who have the technical know-how that Tom was talking about and the data-driven information to be able to, you know, basically create the results uh, and guarantee them uh, just because they can use a computer and read census data. What's interesting, in Pennsylvania, the court 
gave the task for taking the first cut at drawing a new map back to the legislature, which is pretty common practice in redistricting cases, that the legislature will kind of be the presumptive first redrawer. And the idea is then whatever map that the General Assembly comes up with will have to be approved by the governor like any other piece of regular legislation. If the governor approves, that map uh, becomes law. If the governor vetoes the map, then the uh, Supreme Court will probably appoint a special master to draw the map uh, for the state. What's interesting here historically is that Pennsylvania's map is extremely gerrymandered, and it was able to be gerrymandered back in 2011 because one party controlled both the legislature and the governorship. With no veto uh, point from another party involved, Republicans were able to pass through an incredibly extreme map. If the Pennsylvania legislature this time doesn't want to run the risk of its map being turned over to the to the Supreme Court and its special master, then it's going to have to develop something that will be palatable to Governor Wolf, uh, who is a Democrat. And that means that we're likely to see a map that is, is less biased out of the gate because it's going to be the only way to get both parties on board. This is the extreme map that's commonly known as Mickey Kicking Donald. This is the whole map of Pennsylvania. So uh, the Goofy Kicking Donald is one of the more funnily shaped districts. But back in 2011, when Pennsylvania Republicans drew that map, they were looking at the whole state and they cracked and packed the voters throughout the state uh, in all of the state's 18 uh, congressional districts to try to maximize the number of seats that Republicans could hold. They were really successful at that. Republicans have held somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 to 5 seats throughout throughout the decade as a result of, of that. And uh, the Goofy Kicking Donald is, is one famous example, but there are many in the state that reflect the same kind of very careful attention to who's in and who's out in any given district. That discussion about the shape of the district and is it goofy looking or and leads to an important point about if the U.S. Supreme Court is going to set a standard what kind of standard is it going to set and, and what makes a map unconstitutional? And, and there are different theories that are being developed in the different cases that you mentioned. The, the theory in the Wisconsin litigation, for example, is a little bit different than the theory in the Maryland litigation. And North Carolina has you know, kind of a combination of theories. And, and that may be a good thing in, in terms of it gives the U.S. Supreme Court a menu of options uh, to consider in terms of what's the best theory of deciding the constitutional question. There is the risk, though, that if there are too many theories floating around, Justice Kennedy in particular might throw up his hands and say, well, there are too many competing theories. It, it must be that none of them command you know, constitutional status, and there's nothing that we can do as a, as a court. I, I don't think that's going to be where it ends up. I think Justice Kennedy and the court will settle on a particular theory. But one of the things to watch is is which theory does become uh, the winning theory, if you will. And and just to finish out the thought, uh, one theory that's proposed is based on the shape of the distorted map. And it, it, it goes back to that name gerrymander looking like a salamander that you can sort of look at a district and you see that it is so bizarre and distorted. That's a signal that something's going wrong. And as long as other evidence confirms that something's going wrong and there's no valid justification for it, it you, you, you look at it district by district. 
But the other theory, particularly advanced in the Wisconsin case, is it's not about the shape of the districts. It's about the result of the composition of the legislature. And if there are too many members of one particular party relative to the votes cast in the state overall, that's a kind of imbalance that is unconstitutional, regardless of what the map itself looks like. And so it's not just a question of gerrymandering, good or bad. It's what do we really mean by gerrymandering, at least as a constitutional matter. Well, well, Tom, what are these theories or what are these standards? I mean, from my knowledge, there's at least one standard that the areas have to be contiguous. What are what are the competing theories that, that are out there? So as Ned highlighted, there are a couple different cases that are currently in front of the Supreme Court, and they're, they're approaching these issues slightly differently. In the Wisconsin case, the claim is largely that the drawing of of the whole uh, Wisconsin State Assembly map represents a partisan gerrymander that violates both the 14th Amendment and the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And what they say is what the court should look at is three different elements. They should look at the intent behind the map. Basically, did the legislators drawing the map intend to entrench their party in power? The second inquiry's effect, which is basically, did they succeed? The plaintiffs in that case describe it in, in sort of technical terms as durable asymmetry. And basically what durable asymmetry means is the map has been sort of hardwired in a way to make it easier for Republicans to get seats than Democrats. Generally, uh, the example in Wisconsin is Wisconsin Republicans can get a majority of, of 60 seats or more in a 99-seat assembly with something between 48 and 53% of the vote. Democrats would have to get something far larger than 53% of the statewide vote in order to grab that same number of seats. So there's sort of a, a structural inequality in the way that the maps process votes. And then if that kind of inequality exists, then the third showing is justification, a neutral justification, which means that it's then the burden of the state to say, yes, despite the fact that there is this intentional, uh, despite the fact there's this asymmetry in the map, that can be accounted for for any number of legitimate reasons. And the reason that's frequently given, although I don't think it's often a good reason or a true reason, is the geographic distribution of voters throughout the state. So it may be that just simply because of the way voters are spread out, it's basically impossible for Democrats to win the same number of seats with the same number of votes statewide that Republicans get, and they're just going to have to live with that. They're, that challenge, importantly, focuses on, on the whole state map. In Maryland, they have a different theory that they're packaging primarily as a First Amendment theory, and they're saying this is basically like a workplace retaliation claim that's pretty common under the First Amendment. And what we're doing is we're looking at one specific district in Maryland. So Maryland has eight congressional districts. We're looking at what happened to the sixth district. And what happened there was, uh, historically, that district was a Republican district where Republican voters were reliably electing Republican candidates. The Democratic uh, legislators and Martin O'Malley, who's the governor at the time, decided that they wanted to grab an extra seat and they targeted the 6th district, they moved Republicans out and they moved Democrats in to flip that district from Republican to Democrat, and therefore um, that was a form of retaliation against the Republican voters for voting Republican. They basically took their ability to elect away. Um, 
So you have both kind of different geographic scopes and different actual tests for figuring that out. Basically, they, the Maryland plaintiffs want the court to say, did you intend to punish a group of voters uh, for the way they voted, um, particularly due to their partisan affiliation? Did you dilute their ability to vote successfully or, or impose some other kind of burden on them? Uh, and if all of that happened, can the state justify that by pointing to some other uh, value? As you noted, Craig, um, there are a number of things that are typically referred to as traditional redistricting principles. These are things like the district should be as compact as possible. The district should be contiguous, meaning you know, all the territory is continuous. You can't have in one district uh, the southwest corner of the state and the northeast corner of the state with nothing linking them in between. Uh, there's often an attempt to keep municipalities intact or counties intact. These are all things that many uh, legislatures and some uh, redistricting commissions take into account when they're drawing maps, but they're not, uh, at least as a matter of federal constitutional law, required. Uh, some state constitutions do impose various combinations of those criteria on either their state legislative maps or their congressional maps, but they're not required as a matter of federal law. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to take a break for a moment before we move on to our next segment. We're going to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Professor Ned Foley. He's the Director of Election Law at the Moritz College of Law at Ohio State's Law School, and Tom Wolf, who's counsel for the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Well, Ned, right before the break, we were talking about the principles of redistricting. Uh, what What's the generalized argument or what are the problems with simply just choosing existing governmental boundaries for, for voting districts? If a state did follow these traditional criteria and said, we're going to have compact districts, they're going to be contiguous, and we're going to follow uh, existing municipal boundaries and county boundaries, um, that would likely be constitutional from a federal court perspective because there wouldn't be anything manipulative about uh, the the map and it and would and it would be justifiable according to these traditional principles and there wouldn't be any malevolent intent so I don't think there would be a constitutional claim but as a matter of good government you could make the argument that that's not all that that matters because if if it is true that Democrats are sort of naturally clumped in cities and Republicans more dispersed, then following these traditional criteria could lead to a skewed legislature to begin with. And, and one way to think about this is to draw an analogy to the Electoral College. Now, the Electoral College is not a product of gerrymandering. The Electoral College has been here since the founding of the country. This wasn't any partisan intent. The, the Republican Party didn't exist in uh, when the Constitution was founded, but 
the the way the Democrats are naturally clustered in coastal states and Republicans are more dispersed caused a Republican candidate this last time to win the Electoral College, even though the Democratic candidate got more votes. So that's an example of how just following traditional uh, geographical boundaries, political boundaries, can lead to a result inconsistent with majority rule and, 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 and popular sovereignty since the national popular vote did not prevail. So if a state decided to choose traditional geographic boundaries as its redistricting principle, it, it could emulate the Electoral College in the sense of still achieving a skewed result, not for malevolent intent, but just inconsistent with good democracy. Another thing I would throw in there, uh, it's sort of a point related to Ned's point, and um, one of the things that makes redistricting difficult, not really as a as a legal issue for courts to figure out, but just as an issue for uh, democracies to figure out, is that we have a pluralistic democracy, uh, we have a, a diverse population, and one of our kind of core understandings about our legislatures is that they should be representative of the people. But there are a lot of different ways to define the people. And part of what a state legislature needs to do or you know, any ballot initiative that's looking to install a commission is to think about what do we want our legislature to do? What do we want it to represent? And so it may be that traditional municipal lines or county lines don't fully capture the kind of full flavor or, or diversity or nature of our, of our society. And California would be a great example of this when they appointed their redistricting commission. They spent a lot of time speaking to people in the community to find out what communities were relevant to them, what kind of identities bonded them. And it, and it wasn't just Democrats or Republicans. It was people who live up in the hills who have fire problems or people who use the same highways to commute to work or people who belong to the same school districts. And so there's at least in theory a much richer and, and more diverse way of defining how you should create your districts uh, beyond the traditional redistricting principles. Well, even beyond the traditional redistricting principles, do Americans operate under the misnomer that this is a majority rule country? Or is it really, as, as Ned pointed out, the Electoral College is in place to make sure that the, the elections happen a particular way? How really is it, Ned? Yeah, I, I think we have a complicated de democracy. Sometimes it's called a Madisonian democracy after James Madison. And that is, you know, we do believe that citizens have the right to vote. We do have one person, one vote. The, the court did insist upon that. The court has also said there isn't there isn't an automatic guarantee in proportional representation, for example. If a political party happens to get 55% of the votes statewide, it doesn't automatically translate into 55% of the seats in the legislature. So, so that principle is not ingrained in the Constitution. And, and part of the problem is we're trying to utilize a Constitution written in the 18th century for 21st century democracy with our much more robust understanding of it, plus the extra technology that Tom talked about. And so it, this would be easy to do if the Constitution had been amended, not just to grant women the right to vote and to, to, to make sure that everybody had the right to vote, but if the Constitution had specifically said, we want to ban partisan gerrymandering because it's evil, then the courts could enforce that constitutional provision like they 
enforce the prohibition against race discrimination because it's in the Constitution. The problem is there isn't anything specifically in the Constitution about gerrymandering. It's, it's just a practice that has existed, and but we also know that it's bad. And therefore, figuring out how to tie the Constitution to what should happen today is a is a problem that has bedeviled the judges for the last few decades, as, as Tom said, because they haven't hammered out a constitutional standard, despite being offered several different options of what that constitutional standard should be. And then you've got more conservative justices like Chief Justice Roberts worried that any standard that, that the court imposes that can't be shown to be specifically written in the Constitution will look like it's just made up by the court or imposed by the judges, and he's afraid that the judges will be accused of, of partisan bias themselves if their imposition of a, of a standard happens to help one particular party in one case. And that's one reason why it's perhaps advantageous at the moment that you've got both the Maryland case and the Wisconsin case in front of the court, because not only do they have these different theories in them, but in one case, it was the Republicans doing the bad thing, and in the other case, it was the Democrats doing the bad thing. So it gives the the court an opportunity, if it does impose a constitutional standard, to look more neutral and not look like a partisan actor itself. Tom, what does the future hold for us? I mean, now, and I, and I hearken to the book, The World is Flat, with the internet among us and, and your well-taken point about the richness of the diversity and the centers of influence that we all have with each other. Is the internet going to flatten things out to the point that gerrymandering really isn't necessary? We're all just going to be voting on the computer anyway? I, I take a potentially darker view uh, if the court doesn't act here. Um, there was a really interesting amicus brief put in the Whitford case by a group of political scientists. And basically what they argued to the court is because of the way technology has developed, particularly since about 2008, with increasing data, increasing computer power, and then a better ability to integrate those sorts of things into maps, we're going to see even more extreme gerrymanders in the sense of maps that have even more partisan bias in them than the worst maps this cycle. They may also look more normal to the eye next cycle. And that's likely to happen now that the kind of playbook is known, and the court really needs to step up and, and do something about that. I think in the, in the short term, though, I'm at least cautiously optimistic that the court is finally going to plant a, a flag somewhere this June uh, in some combination of the Wisconsin and the Maryland uh, cases saying, here is some kind of uh, line that legislators can't cross, and if they do, their map's going to be struck down as, as unconstitutional. But uh, you know, lacking that, uh, the next decade is, is not looking particularly uh, bright. We really, really do need at this juncture some some decisive judicial action. Well, hopefully we'll get it. And uh, gentlemen, we just about reached the end of our program where we'd like to invite you to share your final thoughts and provide your contact information to our listeners if they'd like to reach out to you. So let's uh, turn to Ned first and have you wrap up. And, and... Sure, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, Building on what Tom just said, I think as important as it's going to be what the court says this coming June, it's what's going to happen after the next round of uh, redistricting with the new census in 2020. And not only is that event important of itself, but we're likely to have new justices on the court 
by then just because of the natural cycle of retirements and so forth. And so any decision that comes out of the Maryland and Wisconsin case has to satisfy five justices and the majority of the court today, but it's got to satisfy the standard of precedent and stare decisis that meaning the new court in 2021 says we're going to honor that precedent and we're not going to overrule it and we're going to um, we're going to keep this this new tradition developing. So the justices now are writing not just for the today in these maps in the 2018 election. They're really writing for posterity, and so it puts an extra burden of persuasion, I think, on them uh, that makes what's going on even more momentous. So just something to to think about. Um, and if people want to follow up on on this idea or others. Um, as someone who's honored to be at Ohio State University, we have an election law website. It's called Election Law at Moritz, and our scholarship can be found there. And um, in particular, uh, the William & Mary uh, Law Review has done a symposium uh, on redistricting that that is in the process of being published. So that's something to look for. Um, Tom's going to talk about the great resources of the Brennan Center, so I'll let him do that. But 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 uh, there's definitely uh, resources out there for the folks who want to uh, follow up and learn more. Great. Thank you, Ned. And Tom, your final thoughts and contact information? Oh, well, thanks for having on. And Ned, thanks for the kind words. I, I think that something for everyone to keep in mind right now is that Partisan gerrymandering in particular is an incredibly dynamic space right now. For about a decade, people have been gearing up for the cases that we are seeing in front of the court right now, and everything is in a bit of a moment of suspended animation. What the court says in that case, as, as Ned noted earlier, may not and likely won't fix most of the problems we have with our maps, but hopefully we'll lay down some, some bright lines or some guardrails to kind of get the conversation going. Whether the court does that or not, though, there are, there will be some other opportunities uh, moving forward to try to bring a little more sanity to our maps. So there are ballot initiatives currently running. Uh, there's one that has a really great head of steam in Michigan, and it, it may be that what happens with the court provides some additional fuel there. It may be that legislators who have enjoyed the fruits of extreme gerrymandering this decade think that when they're looking to their electoral prospects next decade, they might not do as well. They may be willing to go to the table to put some legislation on the table. Um, there are a number of different ways to kind of move this conversation forward. So while the court's an important aspect of it, it's not the sum total of everything. And it'll be uh, particularly vital for people to support that. Also to keep in mind that basically all the elections since the fall of 2017 gubernatorial elections are putting the legislators and the governors in place now who are going to be in charge of redistricting in 2021. So to the extent that you care about fair maps, you should make that a point uh, whenever you're having a conversation with a potential uh, representative of yours to see where they stand and enforce that norm of fair maps with them. Over at the Brennan Center, we track all the ongoing litigation. We track pending bills. Uh, we post blogs and commentary. Uh, so our website's brennancenter.org. Um, we have all our great redistricting resources there. I'm also on Twitter at Tom TM Wolf, uh, and my senior counsel here, Michael Lee, who's a very prolific tweeter and expert in the area, is at NCPLI. Uh, and we look forward to continuing the conversation both uh, offline and online. Great. Tom and Ned, thank you very much for being on our program today. I have to comment myself that having gone through a voting rights class in law school, I'm surprised to see gerrymandering now in the social discourse. 
it's an, it's a big change, and people are particularly paying attention to politics much more significantly than I think we have in a long time. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at LegalTopNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is off today. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.